hereafter, what the Bible says about life after death and what lies ahead. This is the series we started last week, and I've been getting a ton of feedback uh, that people are really interested and excited about this series, uh, which is pretty cool. So that's great. Um, I'm glad that you're engaged in the Word of God. Uh, last week, what I shared as sort of the overarching message about what the Bible says about what lies ahead and whatnot is that the main Christian hope, the main Christian hope as in the Bible is not that we'll go to heaven when we die someday, but that the one day Jesus, the Messiah, will return and we who are saved, who belong to him, will be resurrected to eternal life where we will live in a future final heaven here on earth. This is the overarching sweep of the story of history. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, it says, In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Meaning his resurrection was the first of a great harvest that is to come, that is the resurrection of everyone at the end. So, more on that in a coming message when we talk about the resurrection. And uh, if you missed last Sunday's kind of broad overview, go back and watch that on YouTube. You can listen to it. We've been, we're now podcasting uh, the sermons as well in our Emmanuel podcast. So you can put it in your earbuds while you're doing the dishes or whatever it is uh, if you missed it. But the question we're going to ask this morning is, okay, we know that the resurrection is coming one day for everyone. But what happens before that? What happens between our death and our resurrection? What happens between our death and our future resurrection one day? So I, I, I counted the other day, out of curiosity, how many funerals I have officiated since I've been a pastor. The answer is I've officiated at 48 funeral services, and then with Lauren's service, it'll be 49. So who here is going to be number 50? Anyone? Any takers? <laughs> the reality is sooner... Oh, Barb says she's interested. <laughs> the reality is sooner or later, hopefully later, you're going to die. These boys think that this is working now. Let's give it a try. If you, haven't, if you haven't noticed yet, I'm a bit of a mess this morning. Um, anyway, uh, when your family, so as I said, we're all going to die. When your family one day is gathered around your body, and they're notifying the funeral home, and Andrew Boone is coming to collect you. Where's Andrew? I don't see him. Um, and you're buying flowers, you're picking out a casket, you're writing the obituary, and, and they're thinking about your favorite hymns for the service, what will you be doing at that moment? Many would say, nothing, of course, you're dead. But that's not what the Bible says. Death is really a separation, a separation of the body from the soul or spirit. 
we have this dual nature. We are body and we are soul or spirit. I use those words soul and spirit interchangeably. And when you die, the body, your body goes to the grave or to be cremated or whatever. But what of your soul? What of your disembodied soul? Do you float around like a ghost? Do you go inhabit a spooky old house in your neighborhood? Do you become one with a universal soul? That's what we're going to answer this morning. What happens after our death in those moments and in this period of time between our death and our future resurrection? Or, as I've titled the message this morning, Where's Grandma? Where's Grandma? I, Julia said, that title's in bad taste, Michael. And I said, well, you know what? I already promised them that I am going to call the sermon Where's Grandma, and I'm a man of my word. So it's still Where's Grandma? The intermediate state. See, the Bible focuses the whole emphasis, as I've said, and I will continue to say, the whole emphasis of the New Testament is towards our future bodily resurrection and these eternal states of heaven and hell. But in the meantime, souls go to what theologians call the intermediate states. Now let's back up to help us make sense of this. Uh, as we said last Sunday, before Jesus came, everybody who died, their souls went to the same place, this place called Sheol in the Hebrew and Hades in the Greek is the Greek equivalent of that word, sort of an underworld. Uh, it's, we really don't know much about it, so it's, it's a bit hard to um, explain. Th I'm not going to bother at all now at this point. Thanks. Um, we don't know much about it. The Bible doesn't give us a great deal of information about what this place is like. But all of the images are sort of of a kind of gloomy underworld. Uh, we're not clear as well if there was consciousness of the soul in this state. But I lean towards, as I said this last week as well, I lean towards that this existence of the soul after death in the period before Jesus was a conscious existence of the soul. And the reason for that is because of two stories in the Bible. The first one is found in 1 Samuel 28. And this is the story of Saul going to see the witch of Endor. Some of you may know this story. Saul is losing in battle. He's distressed. Samuel, the prophet, has died. And he misses his prophet that he can go and consult with. So he tracks down the witch of Endor. And he had outlawed witches and mediums, which was against what God wanted for the people. But he was desperate. And so he went to consult this medium, the witch of Endor. And this is what happened, starting at verse 8 of 1 Samuel 28. So Saul disguised himself by wearing ordinary clothing instead of his royal robes. And then he went to the woman's home at night, accompanied by two of his men. I have to talk to a man who has died, he said. Will you call up his spirit for me? Are you trying to get me killed, the woman demanded. You know that Saul has outlawed all, outlawed all the mediums and all who consult the spirits of the dead. Why are you setting a trap for me? But Saul took an oath in the name of the Lord and promised, As surely as the Lord lives, nothing bad will happen to you for doing this. Finally, the woman said, Well, whose spirit do you want me to call up? Call up Samuel, Saul replied. And then, get this. When the woman saw Samuel, so obviously it worked, she screamed, You've deceived me. You are Saul. 
And we can stop there. Uh, well, actually, no, I'll keep going. Don't be afraid, the king told her. What do you see? And she said, I see a god coming up out of the earth. She said, what does he look like? Saul asked. He is an old man wrapped in a robe, she replied. Saul realized it was Samuel, and he fell to the ground before him. Why have you disturbed me by calling me back? Samuel asked Saul. Okay, so here's this picture. Evidently, a true story. It's in the Bible. It's depicted as a true story of this witch actually literally calling up, or maybe God did it, the spirit, the soul of the prophet Samuel. And he says, why have you disturbed me? He was at rest. He was at peace. And now he's been disturbed, his, his spirit. So that gives me a pretty clear indication that Samuel was having a conscious spiritual existence. Then the other story is in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 17. And this is the transfiguration of Jesus. Jesus takes uh, Peter, James, and John, three of his disciples, and they go up onto this mountain. Uh, and on this mountain, they have this intense spiritual experience. And it says this, As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. And then get this, suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus. Moses, who died a long time ago, and Elijah, who was translated directly into heaven in chariots of fire, both of them appear now with Jesus on this mountaintop. So again, we see here that these guys were not dead and unconscious in a grave somewhere, but they were both of them, along with Samuel, very clearly um, awake and conscious and living in some sort of spiritual dimension. So these two scenes could provide for us some insight into what our spiritual state will be in the afterlife, in this intermediate time. In our hosts around the supper table, uh, oftentimes we have um, very good, deep, meaningful conversations. Other times we have the opposite. <laughs> it's burping and it's gross stuff like that. Um, but sometimes we have really good, deep, meaningful conversations. And the other night, Friday night, Ezra's question was, get this, he, he's 11, today's his birthday, 11 years old today, Ezra is. Um, if you see him, you can wish him a happy birthday. Uh, but uh, here, almost 11 years old, Friday night, his question was, Dad, what will our spiritual bodies be like in the present heaven while we wait for the resurrection? <laughs> yes, kid, that's what I'm talking about. That's a great question. That's where his mind goes sometimes. I love that. My answer was, based on what we see with Samuel and Moses and Elijah in these stories in the Bible, I think that our spiritual bodies will be something like a force ghost from Star Wars. Okay? So I'm a big Star Wars fan. I'm even wearing my Star Wars t-shirt today. Um, I, I don't know, this is, I'm just speculating, but this is what I, when I imagine as I read the story of Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration and I read about Samuel coming up, I picture them something like this, you know, like transparent ghostly kind of figures. I don't know, that's where my imagination goes. So that's what I said to Ezra. But clearly conscious, recognizable, you are still you in this state. So it's starting to become more clear, I think, maybe what 
this afterlife existence is like. Now, at this point, many people will point to Luke chapter 16, and they'll say, well, doesn't that answer the question for us? In Luke 16, Jesus tells this interesting story, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. I'm going to read that, the whole thing, from the English Standard Version. Um, this is what it says. This is Jesus speaking, telling a parable. He says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So you can see a dramatic contrast between these two people. The poor man, Lazarus, died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, notice that word Hades, or Sheol, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his fig finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he, the rich man, said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they have the Bible. Let them hear them. And he, the rich man, said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone should rise from the dead. And that was alluding to his own resurrection, which would be so evident, and yet some would still reject even after that. Okay. Now, this is a, this is a pretty neat story. And many people read this story and think, oh, this is a story about what heaven and hell are like. But it's not, actually, about what heaven and hell are like. It's depicting Sheol, or Hades. Remember, at the time of Jesus telling the story, nobody is in heaven or hell. Those places are empty at the moment, aside from Enoch and Elijah, I suppose, in heaven with the Lord. But these, the, this is referring to this temporary, intermediate state. It paints an image of this place as having two compartments, two sections, the bad section and the good section, smoking and non-smoking. Um, but the problem with this is that this is a parable, okay? This is a parable. Many people have said, well, this is, this is a true story because it's the only parable where a character has a name, Lazarus. But really, it's obviously a parable. It starts exactly like every other parable. It had, you know, there, there was a man who did this. There was a man who did that. There was a woman who found this coin or lost this coin. There was a guy who found a treasure in a field. There was a rich man who died. 
it's, it's, it's a parable. It has fantastic elements. Abraham calling across this great chasm in the underworld. It's included amongst a whole section of parables. So it is clearly a parable. And a parable is a fictional story meant to communicate a true idea. In fact, it's very likely that Jesus didn't actually come up with this parable himself, but was using and retelling uh, a, a Jewish folktale that was already in existence, sort of an Aesop's fable uh, that was already well known. So Jesus starts into this, well, there was a rich man, and then there was this poor guy named Lazarus. And someone, oh, yeah, I've heard this one before. This is good, right? It's not meant to be understood as a true story in terms of literally true. But it is true in the sense that it's clearly making a point. It's making a point about the difficulty of the wealthy to enter the kingdom and, and so on. So we can't and shouldn't build our understanding of what the afterlife is actually like based on Jesus' parable in Luke 16. However, however, that being said, I do think that it makes sense for us to understand Sheol or Hades as having had two compartments or two sections. Why do I think that? Well, because there are writings, rabbinical writings and other ancient texts that predate Jesus from the second temple period of Judaism that also portray Sheol or Hades as having different compartments. A, a section for the righteous, the Old Testament saints, the heroes of the faith from like Hebrews 11 and those people, and a different section for the unrighteous. Many of the rabbis at the time of Jesus and before the time of Jesus were teaching that. And going way back to Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, there's evidence of that possibility as well in Deuteronomy 32 verse 22 when he refers, Moses refers to the lowest parts, the, the lowest, the deepest parts of Sheol. So perhaps Sheol did have two parts to it. You want to put that graphic up? Perhaps the good side, Abraham's, where Abraham is, and the lower parts, the place of Torment, as described in Luke 16. Before the events of Jesus' death and resurrection, as we've said, everybody went to Sheol, one of these two sections. But has anything changed? Has anything changed? So this is a, a graphic sort of we started talking about last week, how Jesus' coming to the earth has begun to change things dramatically. Jesus came, and heaven has begun to overlap with earth once again. Jesus brings the kingdom of God. He brought it already, and yet, not yet, it's not fully come. So Jesus came, and he lived this perfect life, and he brought the kingdom of God, started to bring the kingdom of God, and then he died on a cross. And this cross that Jesus died on, this moment of Jesus' death, is really the hinge of history. This is the turning point of the history of the world. The, one of the, probably the single most important moment in the history of the world. It impacted everything. Most significantly, it's made the way of salvation for us all. Forgiveness is possible. Redemption, justification through his death. Has it changed the afterlife? Yes, it has. There's lots of confusion about what happened to Jesus' soul when he died. You ever wondered about that? When Jesus died on the cross, where did he go? Right? And there's, there's conflicting scriptures. Some scriptures make you think, oh, he went straight to heaven, right? He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. So you think, oh, surely he went up. Um, and yet, they're in Acts chapter 1, 
it says that God did not uh, abandon his soul to Hades. And so that makes you think, oh, well, surely he went to Hades when he died on the cross for those couple of days when he was dead. And, and it's not really clear. The Apostles' Creed, this great statement of faith that we recite often, uh, says that he descended to the dead, meaning he went to Hades. Um, that, even that was a late addition into the Apostles' Creed. So it's all a, a kind of a mystery. No one really knows. I, and I don't know the answer to where he went when he died. And I don't know what he meant when he said to the man on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Maybe he meant today, literally this moment, you're going to join me in heaven. Or maybe he meant today you're going to go with me to the good part of Sheol, the, the, where Abraham is. And that's paradise for the time being. Um, or maybe he, <clears throat> the comma's in the wrong place. Some people have speculated this as well. And he didn't say, today you'll be with me in paradise. He said, I'm telling you today, you will be with me in paradise. Right? The, the, the thief said to Jesus, uh, uh, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And then maybe he said, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise, in my kingdom, in the future. Which kind of makes sense. Again, I don't know. <laughs> The Bible is not always particularly clear about some of these side issues. But here is what is more clear. This is really what I want to get to today. I know we're, we're kind of in the weeds. Hang in there. Hang in there. I know there's a lot of uh, theology and stuff. Just hang in there. After Jesus' work on the cross and his resurrection and his ascension, after all of that salvation work of Jesus was completed... The new reality is clearly this. The souls of believers in Christ who die do not continue to go to Sheol or Hades. Rather, we can say quite strongly that the souls of believers in Jesus Christ go to be with Jesus. That means they go to heaven in its present state or the present heaven. What's the biblical basis for this? Well, our starting point is that we know that Jesus is in heaven. Jesus did eventually go to heaven. We know that for sure because he ascended back to heaven 40 days after his resurrection. That's where he is today. The bodily ascension of Jesus took place. We record, we, that's recorded in Acts chapter 1, verse 11. When an angel came and said to the disciples who were watching him go, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come again the same way you saw him go into heaven. So, we know he's in heaven. We know he's seated at the right hand of the Father. The scriptures are clear about that. So wherever heaven is, whatever dimension, or if it's outside of our universe, I don't know. But wherever that heavenly realm is, where the Father is, Jesus is right there with him. Literally there. And so Jesus is in heaven. The New Testament believers, the disciples of Jesus, Christians, clearly fully expected that when they died, their souls would be with Jesus. Jesus is in heaven. They say our souls are going to go be with Jesus. So they're going to heaven. Philippians chapter 1. We're going to read that. Philippians 1, 20 to 24. Paul writing, I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ, whether I live or die. For to me, living for Christ, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. 
But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sakes, it is better that I continue to live. So Paul says, dying is even better than living because I get to go be with Jesus, which is far better. How about 2 Corinthians chapter 5? Paul again He's talking in chapter 5 about the new bodies that we're going to have one day in the future. But then he kind of detours and he talks about death and the reality now, the intermediate states. And he says in verse 6, We are always confident even though we know that as long as we live in these bodies, we are not at home with the Lord. For we live by believing and not by seeing. Yes, we are fully confident. And get this, would rather be away from these earthly bodies. For then we will be at home with the Lord. So whether we are here in this body or away from this body, our goal is to please him. For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. Being away from the body, according to Paul, is possible. And for Paul, to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord Jesus. A place he'd rather be. In Romans 8.38... He says that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not even death can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, which tells me that we are in Christ even in death. And then this is a, an interesting one in Acts chapter 7. This is uh, the stoning of Stephen, one of the disciples. He's preaching and the crowd is getting angry with him. Starting at verse 54, the Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation and they shook their fists at him in rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. Then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul, who would become the Apostle Paul, who we just read a minute ago. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. Stephen knew that his spirit would be received by Jesus upon his death. And he saw Jesus in heaven. Last one, Revelation 6. Now, Revelation is a, is a, is a bit of a weird book. And actually, this week, uh, I'm going to be recording a podcast um, about the book of Revelation, how to read that. And I have a special guest that will be joining me on that podcast. And that is Danny Zacharias, the professor of New Testament at Acadia Divinity College. Um, so he knows what he's talking about. We're going to talk about how do we read this book of Revelation anyway, because it's coming up in our Bible reading plan uh, starting next Sunday. And next Sunday, we're talking about the second coming of Christ. So it's good timing. So stay tuned for that. 
So Revelation is a bit tricky to understand, but there's all these fantastic images and symbolism, but they communicate truths to us. And one of the, this, in Revelation 6, we have this image, this scene in heaven. It says, verse 9, when the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful in their testimony. So people who have, Christians who have died, John sees them in heaven. They shouted to the Lord and said, Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and they were told to rest a little longer until the full number of the brothers and sisters, their fellow servants of Jesus, who were to be martyred, had joined them. So again, we have this image, people in heaven, with Jesus at rest. And what are they doing? They're waiting. They're longing for the events of the future resurrection and judgment. So let's recap. Let's recap. Before Jesus, everyone who died went to the same place, Sheol, Hades, where it is likely that there were two sections, the better place and the worst place. Since the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the souls of believers will go directly now to the present heaven to be in the presence of Jesus, waiting and resting as the resurrection is to come in the future. But what about those who don't believe in Jesus? Well, every indication is that those who die without faith in Jesus Christ continue to go to Sheol or Hades, presumably to this lower part, the place of unrest, since no other alternative is presented anywhere else. And presumably, the good part where the saints of old were uh, has been emptied. This is, uh, this is speculation. It's not in Scripture. But uh, the church has speculated for years about the harrowing of hell that Jesus on his death uh, went and released those who were in the good part of Hades to, to now be in heaven with him. So what will happen when I die? Back to the question we asked at the start. When I'm meeting with your family and your grandson or granddaughter asks, where's grandma? The answer is, it all depends on whether or not you've been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, for it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. And that, not of ourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. Not of works. It's not about what you do in this life, but about what he has done for you on the cross. Heaven is not for the good people. Heaven is for the forgiven people. If you have been saved by the blood of Christ, you are now compatible with holy God. You are able to be in his presence because the righteousness of Christ has been applied to you. And 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, God made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we can become the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God applied to us through faith in Christ. So I am confident, 
I am confident, not because of my own goodness or because I'm a pastor or anything that I have done at all, but I am confident that when I close my eyes in death one day, I will open my spiritual eyes in the presence of Jesus Christ. And I have that confidence. I have that confidence because of the authority of the word of God, which tells me in Romans 10 verse 9 that if anyone confesses with their mouth and believes in their heart that Christ Jesus is Lord and, and that God raised him from the dead, that he shall be saved. My confidence is in John 3.16 that says, Whosoever, anyone at all who believes in Jesus Christ shall not perish but have eternal life. My confidence is in Titus 3, verses 3 to 7, which says, we, once we too were foolish and disobedient. Yeah, I can say that's true of me. I've been foolish and disobedient. We were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy, and we hated each other. But when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done. Nope. Not because we're so good. Not because I'm all that in a bag of potato chips. Not because I've helped old ladies cross the street. But because of his mercy, he washed away our sins, it says, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because of his grace, he made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. Amen. Amen. Isn't that a great scripture? Woo, baby, that's a good one. All right. I am confident. I am confident in the work of Christ to sufficiently satisfy the entrance requirements into the kingdom of God, both the future and final heaven to come and in the temporary present heaven where I will await, await the resurrection with Jesus my Lord and with all my brothers and sisters in Christ, including my loved ones who also belong to the family of God. I've got all kinds of confidence about that, and I want you to have that confidence as well. I have sat by the bedside of believers in Christ as they have died. And I can tell you, there is a peace that cannot be explained. I've heard it from many others too, whose loved ones knew Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, your spirit will go to Hades or Sheol a place which may or may not be a conscious existence, though I'm pretty sure it is a conscious existence. And if Luke 16 parable uh, has any truth to it, it may even be a place where the soul or spirit is in torment, waiting, also waiting for the resurrection, but not a resurrection to eternal life, but a resurrection to judgment and eternal death. More on that in a future sermon. Where will you be? Where will you be between your death and your resurrection? That may be the most important question you ask yourself. Because once you've arrived there, there's no turning back, no changing your mind. Your fate at that point is sealed for the day of judgment, the day of Christ's return.
So think on that. And maybe if you haven't quite got to that place of faith yet, maybe you don't wait a whole lot longer. Because you never really know when your time in this world is up.